This episode is brought to you by Warren Coughlin, CEO coach and founder of Jumpstart Coaching. Now, I wanted to partner with Warren because one of my biggest regrets across my seven years as a CEO was not hiring a coach. And to the best extent possible, I want to prevent others from making that same mistake. Warren focuses exclusively on coaching CEOs running small and medium-sized businesses and has been doing so for over 20 years. And what I particularly love about Warren is the structured approach that he takes to working with CEOs, particularly within those first 90 days of the engagement to ensure that the foundation being built upon is a solid one. Within those first three months, he will help you establish a scorecard containing all of your key numbers in a single place. He'll help you build out a high-performing leadership team, and he'll share with you a proprietary tool to organize your execution plan, which will clearly outline who should do what by when. Best of all, working with Warren is effectively risk-free. If at the end of those first three months you are not happy with the direction of the business, he will give you your money back. If that doesn't say confidence, I don't know what does. On top of all of that, Warren is also offering $3,000 off of his coaching program for listeners of In the Trenches. Just go to warrencoglin.com forward slash trenches to learn more. Coglin is spelt C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. This episode is brought to you by Kane Crossing. The Q of E report is one of the most important sources of information for prospective purchasers and their investors. And as a result, the firm that you select to perform it is one of the most important decisions that you will make as a prospective purchaser. That's why I'm excited to partner with Kane Crossing. I've actually read through and analyzed and relied upon several of their actual Q of E reports in my capacity as an investor, and as a result, can personally attest to the quality of the work that they do. Unlike any other Q of E provider that I'm aware of, Kane Crossing often co-invests alongside their buyers, which aligns their interests with yours in a way that I just haven't seen anywhere else. Over the past 12 months alone, they've completed 61 Q of E projects with a combined transaction value of over a billion dollars, though it's worth noting that their median transaction value is about $10 million in enterprise value, which puts them comfortably in the range of most small business buyers. And the team brings big four experience and capabilities, after all the two co-founders met while both were working at KPMG, but importantly, they're able to offer these capabilities at a much lower price than a big four provider ever could. Cane Crossing is offering a special discount to listeners of In the Trenches. Just go to canecrossing.com, Kane is spelled C-A-Y-N-E, and scroll down to the contact form on their homepage. Enter the offer code TRENCHES and you will get a full $2,000 off of your Q of E engagement with them. Again, that is canecrossing.com. Enterprise software is considered to be among the world's best business models, and for good reason. Revenue tends to be highly recurring. Switching costs, pricing power, and customer retention rates are often high, and businesses have the ability to scale in a non-linear fashion, owing to the fact that additional units of software can often be sold without incurring many, if any, incremental costs. However, for those looking to acquire enterprise software companies, these benefits tend to come at a relatively steep price. Software businesses most frequently trade at multiples of recurring revenue, which stands in contrast to most other industries in which businesses tend to trade at multiples of EBITDA or cash flow. In other words, getting access to the world's best business model doesn't come cheaply. 
With that said, not all software investment theses are created equally. There are indeed several different approaches to acquiring and building a software company, and each approach presents a different investment thesis, requires different operational and value creation strategies, and is likely to command different asking prices. The purpose of this audio blog is to present and evaluate five very different approaches that buyers might consider in their pursuit of a software business. Though this list of approaches is by no means exhaustive, it does at least capture those that I tend to see most frequently. What I hope you'll take from listening to this is that no single approach is perfect and that each set of benefits inherent to each investment thesis comes at some sort of a cost. Before we dive in, it's worth mentioning three things. The first is that the analysis that follows has purposely been generalized and the results should be viewed as such. Nothing below should be interpreted as a rule or a universal truth. Second, the names that I've ascribed to each of the five investment theses are imperfect at best and shouldn't be overanalyzed or taken too literally. And finally, as usual, my commentary focuses on early career individual acquirers who plan to take an active operational role in the business that they acquire after the consummation of the transaction. As a result, parts of my analysis might be less relevant to strategic acquirers or private equity firms planning to install experienced management teams within the companies in question. Let's start by asking the question, why do software companies trade at revenue multiples? If the value of any business in any industry is equal to the present value of its stream of future cash flows, why would any rational investor pay a multiple of revenue, a metric that doesn't tend to be terribly predictive of cash flow, all else being equal? Well, broadly speaking, the reasons why fall into two categories. The first speaks to the quality of the business model. As mentioned above, the business model underlying many enterprise software companies is uniquely attractive. Under the right circumstances, revenue and earnings have the potential to be highly stable, predictable, scalable, non-cyclical, and high margin, among other virtues. Due to the laws of supply and demand, such business models should reasonably be expected to command higher price tags. The second reason is the cash flow generation characteristics of subscription models. The vast majority of software companies operate under a subscription-based revenue model, and under such models, current earnings are not necessarily a reasonable proxy for the future earning potential of the company. This is so because acquiring new customers often requires large upfront one-time costs, often by way of sales and marketing expenses, but the revenue generated from these acquired customers tends to be spread out over much longer periods of time in the future through monthly or annual subscription payments. This asymmetry between current and potential future earnings is particularly acute for young companies, as well as those growing at very rapid rates. But even within software, as we'll discuss below, not all business models are equally attractive, though some do indeed appear to be as close to bulletproof as any business model can be. Others simply do not fit this description. Beginning in mid-2020 or so, it seemed as if the market was ascribing high single-digit ARR multiples to all software companies, simply by virtue of the fact that they were a software company. In Q3 of 2021, the median multiple paid in private market software M&A reached eight times. This was almost double the longer-term average of 4.15 times that persisted between Q3 of 2017 and Q3 of 2020. 
As I read this in Q3 of 2022, the median price has since fallen materially, though remains elevated relative to historical norms at 5.2 times. As you'll see in the commentary that follows, some types of software investment theses are indeed likely to require mid to high single digit ARR multiples, whereas others may only require mid single digit EBITDA multiples. But of course, price is only one variable among countless others that the prospective acquirer must consider. So let's start with evaluating the first of these five software investment theses. Thesis number one, I have called the growth equity style deal. Now, I don't know how well this is going to translate to audio, but for each of the five investment theses, I'm going to go through the same 10 variables and talk about how they change across each of these five very different approaches. So with respect to the growth equity style deal, the transaction characteristics, the acquisition multiple is high, typically an average of three to four times ARR in the lower middle market, but can reach six times or higher. Transaction financing is typically all equity, often with little debt, perhaps even no debt at all. Cash funded to balance sheet after closing, it can be material depending on whether or not future cash burn or investments required to sustain or accelerate future growth need to be financed. Company characteristics, historical revenue growth rate, often very high, about 30% or more annually. Historical EBITDA is often low, sometimes EBITDA or cash flow neutral to slightly negative. The age of the seller, often a bit younger. Age of the technology stack, often a bit newer. Post-close considerations. The required revenue growth rate moving forward is often very high, 30% or more annually. Value creation levers are very much related to revenue growth. The relative execution risk and complexity I've defined as medium. So let's discuss what this investment thesis is all about. So this is the investment thesis that I've seen most frequently over the past few years within the lower middle market. In these types of transactions, target companies are often growing revenue at a rapid pace and also tend to demonstrate the characteristics that make the enterprise software business model so appealing. Highly recurring revenue streams, low customer churn rates, high gross margins, and a product that is often mission critical to the operations of the customer base without it representing a large percentage of their overall cost structures. Though this all sounds terribly attractive on the surface, these benefits, particularly the growth rate of revenue, tend to come at a very real cost, namely the high price that a buyer typically has to pay to acquire such a company, especially if the acquisition process is a competitive one. Recall that not all great businesses necessarily make great investments. Several challenges flow from the elevated purchase prices typical of this investment thesis, including Number one, ignoring the potential for market-driven multiple expansion between entry and exit, as this is something that one can rarely count on, aggressive and sustained revenue growth is effectively a prerequisite for any equity value to be created. Second, being a first-time CEO is hard. Growing a company at 30% per year or more for five years or more is also hard. Having to do both of these things simultaneously is very hard. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is an inappropriate investment thesis for a first-time CEO to pursue, as this thesis can and does work, but I am suggesting that buying a company at five times revenue is a fundamentally different bet relative to purchasing a company at five times EBITDA. 
Though investors the world over tend to target rapidly growing markets, I mean, why wouldn't you? If you're planning to pursue this particular investment thesis, I would suggest being particularly sensitive about the market in which you are acquiring to ensure that it's of the rapidly growing variety. I say this because growing revenue at 30% a year in a market growing at 30% a year is one thing, but having to do so in a slow growth or a stagnant market is another thing entirely, especially for an inexperienced operator. Thesis number two, the services to software deal. Transaction characteristics. Acquisition multiple is usually based on EBITDA, could include a small component based on revenue. Transaction financing is usually a mix of equity and debt. Cash funded to the balance sheet after closing is often not required. Company characteristics. Historical revenue growth rate varies. Historical EBITDA varies, but usually margins are at 10% or more. Age of the seller varies, and the age of the technology stack varies. In fact, it may not yet exist. Post-close considerations. Required revenue growth rate moving forward varies, though this thesis often focuses on changing the composition of revenue as much as it focuses on growing the absolute number of revenue dollars. Value creation levers. Various, though the most successful transactions under this thesis see buyers acquiring at a services multiple, typically EBITDA, and selling at a SaaS multiple, typically ARR. Relative execution risk and complexity is high. So let's discuss what this investment thesis is all about. So this thesis would see an acquirer purchase a service-oriented business with a view towards ultimately transitioning it into a software business, ideally in whole, though sometimes in part. In some instances, target companies already have a nascent software revenue stream, whereas in others, there's no software revenue stream at all. In either case, the buyer is making a fundamental bet that the services in question or the business problem that the company exists to solve can and should be addressed through the provision of software. There are several advantages to this thesis, including the following. First, the entry price is typically expressed as a multiple of EBITDA, not revenue. Second, these companies tend to be profitable and partially as a result can often support some amount of leverage as part of the purchase price and often don't require cash to be funded to the balance sheet beyond day-to-day -day working capital requirements. Third, there are many possible levers to create equity value beyond just revenue growth. And finally, even if the transition from a service company to a software company ultimately fails, there are still ways in which the investment can be a profitable one for all involved. However, just like every other thesis that I'm going to present in this audio blog, these benefits don't come for free. Some potential prices of admission specific to this investment thesis include the following. First, in order to buy at a services multiple and exit at a software multiple, the software revenue stream will have to grow substantially between entry and exit. In this way, I guess one could argue that the revenue growth being asked of a first-time CEO here is not dissimilar from the growth equity style investment thesis that I just discussed. Second, some business problems are indeed best addressed through a provision of software, but others simply just aren't. Acquirers pursuing this investment thesis need to be highly confident that their target company operates in the former camp and not the latter. Making this challenge particularly acute is the reality that most first-time CEOs often learn more about their companies in their first one to two months running it than they did in the six to 12 months of due diligence that preceded that purchase. Next, building a software business, whether it's from scratch or off of a very small existing base, 
within a company that has decades of experience as a services business is likely to be incredibly difficult from an operational perspective. Almost every aspect of the company, from hiring to organizational design to compensation to cost structure, is likely to have to change materially. As a result, execution risk is likely to be pretty high. And finally, for whatever this is worth, this may be less intellectually interesting to those interested in pursuing a pure play software investment thesis. Thesis number three, the on-premise to SaaS deal. Transaction characteristics. The acquisition multiple is usually based on EBITDA, but low single-digit ARR multiples are possible. Transaction financing can be a mix of equity and debt, though acquirers should be careful about the use of debt in anticipation of the coming J-curve. Cash funded to the balance sheet after closing varies. It's often not required unless the pending J-curve needs to be financed. Company characteristics. Historical revenue growth rate, usually muted, often single-digit annual growth rates. Historical EBITDA, usually pretty high, 20% margins or more. Age of the seller is typically older. Age of the technology stack is typically older. Post-close considerations. Required revenue growth rate moving forward. Again, usually this thesis focuses on changing the composition of revenue as much as it focuses on growing the absolute number of revenue dollars. Value creation levers are various. Relative execution risk and complexity is high. So let's discuss what this thesis is all about. Though this migration is often discussed as if it's a singular act, in its most basic form, it's actually composed of two different, though often closely related, fundamental changes to a business. Namely, number one, primarily financial, that is migrating away from one-time perpetual use license fees in favor of a recurring subscription revenue model, and number two is primarily product, re-architecting or even rewriting your software from a single-server, single-tenant architecture to a single-server, multi-tenant architecture, often necessitating the use of a new or different technology stack. And for those who may be unaware, a tech stack basically refers to the combination of platforms on which both the front end and the back end of your software is built. Companies who successfully navigate both of these transitions are often richly rewarded for their work. A dollar of perpetual use revenue generated by an on-premise software company is roughly four to five times less valuable than that same dollar of subscription revenue generated by a SaaS company. For a real-world exploration of two first-time CEOs who successfully navigated this journey, check out my podcast entitled Buy at Five Times EBITDA, Sell at Eight Times Revenue, the on-premise to SaaS transition of Field Edge. With that said, the large value creation potential inherent in this investment thesis comes at a very steep price, among other things. First, purely on-premise software companies are becoming increasingly difficult to find as the majority of legacy software companies have either ceased operations or have already navigated this transition themselves. Next, a constant battle for resources, time, and attention between the current business, which is the existing on-premise software that is presumably paying 100% of the bills, and the quote, new business, which is the SaaS product that may not yet even exist and is presumably playing 0% of the current bills, but is necessary for the long-term survival of the company. Third, the complete overhaul of the company's financial model. This transition will likely completely change both the revenue and profitability profile of your company. More specifically, in the near term, both your revenue growth and your profitability will be significantly impaired with the latter often needing to be financed somehow. 
Otherwise, profitable companies can quickly find themselves in a liquidity crunch if not planned, executed, and financed properly. Next, the change in your revenue model will make it very difficult for you to clearly, properly, and fairly incentivize your sales force through their incentive compensation plans, especially if you're asking them to sell both the old and the new products simultaneously. Next, the transition to SaaS often necessitates the creation of completely new organizational disciplines or departments or people that didn't need to exist in the previous on-premise regime. Building a new organizational discipline from scratch is incredibly difficult at the best of times, never mind when you're having to deal with all the other problems that I've just walked through. And finally, like many large-scale organizational changes, the transition from on-premise to SaaS will almost certainly create cultural issues that will need to be navigated very carefully. I've actually written about this particular investment thesis pretty extensively in the past. If you're interested in learning more about it, I would encourage you to check out both of the audio blogs that I published entitled Migrating Your Software Company from On-Premise to SaaS. And there are two parts, so feel free to listen to them in order. Thesis number four, the legacy software deal. Transaction characteristics. Acquisition multiple, usually based on EBITDA. Transaction financing, usually a mix of equity and debt. This is likely the thesis that would use the most leverage of each of the theses that I've presented thus far. Cash funded to the balance sheet after closing, usually none beyond day-to-day working capital requirements. Company characteristics, historical revenue growth rate, usually muted, often single-digit annual growth rates. Historical EBITDA, usually high, 20% or higher. Age of the seller is typically older. Age of the technology stack is typically older. Post-close considerations. Required revenue growth rate moving forward is usually quite minimal. Value creation levers. Several, though they're usually related to a combination of pricing and cost control, both built upon a foundation of strong customer retention. Relative execution risk and complexity tends to be low. So let's discuss what this thesis is all about. Though this investment thesis isn't particularly common among entrepreneurs looking to acquire and operate a single private company, it is reasonably common among other types of buyers, namely those with long hold periods, sometimes with no intention of ever selling, and avenues for further deployment of the profits generated by their portfolio companies. In this investment thesis, businesses are primarily purchased for their ability to generate cash flow, not really for their revenue growth potential. At the risk of overgeneralizing, Acquirers pursuing this thesis often do the following. Purchase companies selling products that are mission critical to the operations of their customers. And as a result, they tend to enjoy high customer retention levels, switching costs, and pricing power. They tend to raise prices on existing customers. They tend to decrease or sometimes turn off entirely funding dedicated to future growth initiatives. They tend to maintain or increase funding dedicated towards existing customer retention. They tend to trim operating expenses, usually the growth-oriented ones like new salespeople, new developers, new product R&D, etc., to extract as much cash flow from the business as possible. And finally, they tend to aggressively pursue add-on sales to existing customers, sometimes at the expense of acquiring new customers. Now, buyers pursuing this investment thesis are most likely to achieve their desired returns through dividends, share repurchases, or recapitalizations as opposed to pursuing a sale of the company though sales aren't completely out of the question. One of the reasons why this is so is because 
the realistic universe of acquirers five to seven years from now is likely to be pretty small, at least relative to the other investment theses that we've discussed thus far. It is partially for this reason that many acquirers pursuing this strategy employ infinite hold periods. This thesis, like all of the others, presents prospective acquirers with several merits to consider, including a low relative purchase price, the ability to support leverage, and modest revenue growth requirements of the new owner in their pursuit of equity value. However, like all the other theses, these benefits don't come without their associating costs, including the following. First, risk of meaningful disruption stemming from the emergence of new technologies that may quickly displace the legacy software being offered. Next, muted product R&D spend may eventually negatively impact those high customer churn rates. The code bases tend to suffer from unduly high levels of technical debt, which can significantly impair operations across the entire company. Culturally, these types of investment theses tend to be difficult and highly disruptive for the company's employees. Often the most ambitious and enterprising people leave, which leaves the target company with only the lowest common denominator type of employee. A smaller universe of potential acquirers five to seven years from the initial transaction. And finally, this also may be less intellectually interesting for a young, enterprising entrepreneur to pursue. And finally, thesis number five, the microcap deal. Transaction characteristics. The acquisition multiple, usually a low single-digit multiple of ARR. Transaction financing often leans towards all equity but can vary cash funded to the balance sheet after closing usually material often to fund go forward investments required to pursue additional scale company characteristics historical revenue growth rate varies but often on the lower side historical ebitda varies but often high the age of the seller it's mixed and the age of the technology stack is also mixed post-close considerations the required revenue growth rate moving forward, often material, especially if the acquirer wishes to benefit from multiple expansion on exit. Value creation levers are many. Relative execution risk and complexity, medium to high, often due to zero to one considerations. So let's describe what this investment thesis is all about. Acquirers pursuing this thesis tend to target software companies that are A, very small, often 10 employees or less, usually with 2 million in annual revenue or less, B, growing reasonably slowly, let's say 5 to 10% annually, and C, are very profitable. EBITDA margins could be as high as 40% or more. And finally, D, are quite founder-centric. The basic investment thesis here tends to revolve around the idea that the founder or seller has created a, quote, lifestyle business and has not actively pursued growth, instead electing to extract cash from the business every year to finance their desired lifestyle. These founders are often technical in nature and in many cases built the initial version of the product themselves 10, 15, or even 20 years ago. Now, there are some advantages to pursuing this thesis, including... First, a lower revenue multiple relative to several of the other theses that we've discussed thus far, usually driven by the smaller size of the company. Second, a smaller dollar value of equity that needs to be raised. A less competitive acquisition environment. And finally, buyers can put more of their personal touch on the operations of the acquired company. As usual, however, these benefits don't come without their associated risks. In this case, these include... First, sometimes acquiring companies of this size is more akin to purchasing the founder or CEO's job than it is to acquiring a true growing concern business. Next, assuming that the new owner is interested in pursuing growth, 
the high EBITDA margins pre-transaction may be unlikely to persist due to the negative correlation between growth and profitability that tends to persist more often than not. Next, companies like these often underinvest in their people, tools, processes, and systems. The profitability buyers that buyers see on the current set of financial statements may not represent the true profitability profile that the business will yield under new ownership. Next, despite high EBITDA margins, targets often present a dollar value of EBITDA that can be insufficient to finance future growth initiatives, which is why cash often needs to be funded to the balance sheet at closing. Next, sometimes these businesses are small for a reason. Though it's possible that the owner is indeed satisfied with the current size of her company, it is equally possible that the market is small, competitive, saturated, or contracting. Often, the financial and operational data available to an acquirer of a particularly small company is in considerably worse shape than the information available to an acquirer of a comparatively larger company. Sellers of these types of companies are more likely to use unsophisticated or inexperienced transaction advisors, if they use them at all, which often acts as an impediment to getting a deal done. Key person risk specific to the founder or CEO is more common within this investment thesis. And finally, required revenue growth going forward is often materially high. Buyers must be confident that they can grow the business to a size that is large enough to attract a large universe of potential acquirers at exit. For example, a $3 million revenue business purchased today, even if it grows revenue at a compounded rate of 20% per year, which is quite a feat, is still only a $7.5 million revenue business five years later. For more commentary on the merits and risks of pursuing this investment thesis, you can read or listen to my other blog post entitled, Busting the Biggest Myth About Purchasing and Operating Small Companies. So, in sum, the five theses that I've presented are just a few of the strategies that enterprising buyers can pursue in their search for a software company to acquire. No thesis is perfect, as the benefits presented within each comes with a commensurate set of costs that buyers must be willing and able to pay. Different approaches are likely to resonate with different buyers depending on their access to capital, their contemplated hold periods, where their intellectual interests reside, their operational and value creation strategies moving forward, and countless other variables. The real world is rarely as neat and organized as analyses like these seem to suggest, but that notwithstanding, I hope that this way of framing the software acquisition opportunity was a useful one for you to consider. <music>